Hello everyone, this is Mustar FM 89.6. Welcome, you're listening to the program World Politics. I'm Manuel, and with me are Carmen and Natasha. Hello. Hello. How are you? Fine. Very excited. Today we decided to talk about media freedom. It's a topic that's very important to us, especially because we're working in the radio. And some of us here are journalists, like Carmen. You had something you wanted us to know about. Yes. Speaking of freedom media, colleagues, did you know that Xabel Vegas was a journalist who lost his job in a newspaper called Public for making criticism about Wiccan, a politician growth on Spain? Or, for example, cartoonists of a satirical magazine called Thursday left her work when they told him they couldn't get the king from Spain on the cover. And also, I want to tell you that so far this year, five journalists have already been killed in Mexico. All this is no freedom of media. Everyone who is listening to us maybe know what is median freedom. However, I will quickly explain it. Median freedom is a consequence of freedom of expression. They go together. One cannot be understood without the other, since if we have the right to set and spread whenever we want, it would not make sense that this information did not reach who are interested in knowing it. Media freedom is inherent to the decision-making process in a well-functioning democracy, enabling citizens to make their political choices based on independent and pluralistic information, and thus is an important instrument to form public opinion. The expression of a variety of opinions is needed in public debate to give the citizens the possibility to assess and choose among a wide range of opinions. The more pluralistic and diverse the opinions, the greater is the legitimizing effect that media has on the wider democratic political process. Press freedom is often described as a watchdog over public power, underlining its significant role as an observer and informer of the public opinion on government actions. I think we should also mention that freedom of expression refers back to individual journalists as well as to press institutions' rights. In other words, its significance covers both the individual right of each journalist to express his or her opinion and the press right as an institution to inform people. To guarantee the protection of free media, state authorities not only underlie the negative obligation to abstain from intrusion, but as well shows a positive commitment to promote media freedom and act as a guarantor against intrusion of public as well as private actors. I think it all sounds very nice. It reminds me of some UN declarations, such a beautiful language, beautiful words. But how is it in real life? So, media freedom is a fundamental human right that defends that anyone can split information through any means of expression. It also defends the right to access and receive such information. UNESCO said that median freedom is essential for democracy, development, dialogue, and for the protection and promotion of human rights. In your countries, do you think there is a lot of or little freedom of media? The answer to this can be found in the World Press Freedom Index, published every year by the International and Independent Organization, Report Without Board. According to 20 and 21 data, about half of the world's population still doesn't have access to free information. There are a total of 194 countries in the world, 
the World Press Freedom Index analysis the degree of freedom enjoyed by journalists in 180 countries around the world, of which only 12 enjoy a good situation, that is, high median freedom. Then, 36 have a rather good situation, and finally, there is a total of 132 countries with significant problem or a difficult situation. In conclusion, there are many more countries with limited or abused median freedom. What is the situation in each of our countries? If you are interested, keep listening to us because we are going to tell you. So I have in front of me the complete ranking for every country on the Reporters Without Borders website. Carmen, what do you think are the top five countries? I think maybe the first could be Finlandia, Noruega, maybe Germany, Sweden, um, Portugal. And what do you think, Natasha, are the first five? Well, I think close to Carmen, this should be some Scandinavian countries. So I would say, again, Norway, Sweden, maybe Iceland, and then Denmark, Estonia. Okay, so you're pretty close. The first country is Norway, then Finland, then Sweden, and then Denmark. So these are like the top four are Scandinavian countries, and then it's Costa Rica. Oh, wow. Just in the middle. There, afterwards, there's like Netherlands, Jamaica, New Zealand, Portugal is ninth. So you were close. And what about the five worst countries? I didn't know how to tell you five, but okay. I am sure that Korea del Norte. Yes. It's not the is, worst one. There's what, another what one. The, what is the last one? The last one is Eritrea. Then it's North Korea. Then I don't know it. I, I don't know if you know it. Turkmenistan. It's I close I to the Russia's borders. Okay. Mm-hmm. Then China. And the fifth highest in the lowest ones is Djibouti. Okay. And then a couple more, like I'm going up. Vietnam, Iran, Syria, Laos, Cuba, Saudi Arabia, and so on. I would like to ask you if, uh, are you surprised by this post? Uh, not really. I mean, if I, if I think about like the top five, the Scandinavian countries, for example, it's just the idea that we have in France, or, or at least that I have of these countries is that they have like a lot of social progressive views and like, a low low poverty levels they're like kind of advanced in terms of democracy and everything yes. so that seems that's not surprising to me yeah exactly and i studied journalism in sweden that is why i'm not surprised by that fact as well but costa rica is an eye-opening fact for me how was your experience of studying journalism there that was very interesting because every time when my teachers were telling me yes for example we have this opportunity to just look for everyone's address in the country. And that is very good for journalism, obviously, because then you can find an either email or telephone or address as a flat and go and ask a person to answer your questions. I can't imagine that in Russia because people usually keep it private and they don't want to know the addresses by anyone other than some friends and relatives. So it's very different in practice, and of course, it's very different in theory as well. And are these informations available to everyone, like everyone's address and everything? Yes, yes. There are two lists of private addresses, and it's available simply on internet online. But on the other hand, I can tell you about my native country, which is Russia. 
you can guess as well where it is in the list. I can try. Uh, I would say 162. You're very close. Wait, Carmen, where do you think it's on the list? I have already seen it, so I can uh, okay. participate. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, thank you for your honesty. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's close to 162. It's actually 150 right wow. there, close to the end of this list. And the latest results from 20 to 21 show that it dropped by one place within one year. And I'm rather afraid to look at the data from this year because I'd estimate that it would drop by another five or ten points. You, you thought it would be higher? Yeah, like maybe... 100. But this drop doesn't surprise me, in fact. There are several factors to that. The first is threats. There are many cases when journalists were threatened and even detained under pretext of doubtful accusations. For example, Ivan Safronov, a journalist, is now in prison. He's accused of state treason and confiding classified information to German and Switzerland organizations. And one lucky case was Ivan Galunov, that's an investigative journalist who then was working for Medusa in Latvia. In 2019, he was charged on the basis of false accusations of selling drugs, which looked very stupid and so much not likely to happen to him. And that happened when he was working on an investigation into funeral business, specifically how security services and enforcement were connected to it. He got detained, beaten up, and kept under investigation. That all outraged the journalistic society and there were protests of journalists and other citizens who demanded to let him free because the case was clearly corrupted and fabricated. Around 200-400 people got detained by police during the protests on that day. And finally, in a year... In 2020, the police officers who took Kolonov in were found guilty of fabricating crime and the illegal handling of drugs. So, justice won in this case. Uh, but there is also propaganda, which is now, I'm sure, is well known about, at least in Europe. Uh, the major TV channels have been entertaining viewers with propaganda for quite a long time, although I can't be sure about that myself because I think that I didn't have a TV for a while, for like the last 10 years of my life, to not watch at all. Uh, however, after February 24th, the channels added more hours of propaganda, which is wonderful. Instead, blah, blah. <laughs> the propaganda machine is not sleeping, and it's working tirelessly abroad as well, spreading misinformation. In fact, those few channels which were easy to spot among top ads for journalists with, with a knowledge of foreign languages, were for Sputnik and RT. And after Sweden, when I came back and I was looking for work myself, I was thinking, well, I need a job where my English will be needed as well as some journalistic skills. And what I saw basically was that there was RT, there was Sputnik, and almost nothing else was promoted publicly. For the rest of channels and magazines, the proper ones, you will just need to know people and apply directly to people. 
Uh, the third factor would be sovereign internet, which the Russian officials wanted so long to have in the country, and now they seem to succeed in that. It was something that was long expected, but it wasn't being realized until now. There were some attempts, however, I remember that maybe in 2018 or so, they tried to block Telegram for Russian citizens, but they failed, <laughs> which was quite funny because for half a year we had this news, Telegram is to be blocked, Telegram should be blocked, and we used it for everything, including work, so we didn't want it to be blocked, and we were just looking at it, hoping that it will stay alive. And then Telegram programmers, they were trying to keep it alive, and they, of course, won over the Russian blockage systems. Yeah, th that was very funny. A lot of memes appeared after that. Uh, however, now Meta is officially an extremist organization. Instagram and Facebook are blocked. Together, some media services like BBC, Deutsche Welle, and some others, international media, plus a dozen of independent Russian news outlets. And another practice which is connected to blockage right now, uh, that's a foreign agent label. This practice intensified in spring of 2021 when the best Russian journalists were labeled as foreign agents. And now they have to put a special label on every written material that they publish. However, again, right now when we are talking, that's not already a problem because the same journalists are being officially blocked from the media in Russia. So I think that they need to still be branded as foreign agents by the Russian authorities, but at the same time, Russian citizens are not allowed to read those materials. So that's a big controversial. So that they're like frowned upon by the government and stuff, because... Outcasts and mm. the evil, the new evil. And uh, have you ever, because like you said, you looked at like job placements after coming back from Sweden. Is this something you'd be interested in? Of course. During my last half year in Sweden, I was applying to these foreign agents media and writing to these foreign agent personalities to get a job or practice. But it's hard to find a job there? It's hard to find a job in a good independent media. You can always find a job on public TV channels. What about you, Carmen? Uh, you've studied journalism in Spain. What is the situation there? In my case, uh, Spain is uh, 29 in the 20 and 21 World Press Freedom Index. It is painting yellow, which means that in this country there is a fairly good situation and the level of censorship is not very high, but even so, it can improve much more. In Spain, there is political pluralism and a lot of different media of press, radio, television and online media. However, in Spain, there are still two main problems. On the one hand, politicians often use many euphemisms to look good and try to make up reality. For example, it's not the same to talk about an official acquainting than black money. What do you think about this? Well, I think it's an interesting topic because it happens also in France. The, but the main problem, like, of course, it's a problem of politicians, but like, it's also a problem of journalists that don't necessarily 
correct or try to insist on something. For example, we have yes. crazy declarations on, on things like Islam or whatever. And depending on the media, they don't challenge what politicians say. But it's you can see it's not it's mostly because there's like a an editorial line that they have to follow, which comes from who they work for, basically. It's very interesting. In addition, politicians trying to control much RTVE, that is the radio and public television of, of Spain. Also, sometimes politicians try not to talk to center journalists or even prevent their work. On the other hand, big companies are those who also try to control media information. Generally, often suffer many pressures and threats. In fact, I recommend you read a book called The Director, written by journalist David Jimenez, who, after working as a leader in the world, one of the most important newspapers of Spain, decided to tell the truth about the network of pressure, influence, and favor that there is between economic power, political power, and media. Although the media must supervise the first two. This situation makes journalists on time to preserve their world self-centered. However, Spain tried to change this situation with new independent media, such as the newspaper Diario.es. It is further financed by paying readers than by advertising. What do you think about this in your country? It is similar or different situation? Uh, I think in France, the situation is mostly similar. I mean, they're not too far away from each other on the ranking. They're only five places away because ah, France okay. is 34th. There's been some kind of spike against uh, journalism in the last few years. For example, there's been a lot of protests during the Macron presidency because of a few reforms that were not accepted by the public. One of them that I'm going to talk about later is the global security law, which I'm going to explain what it is when we talk about law further later. Um, but a lot of people were against this, and so there were a lot of protests that were covered by journalists. And what was particular about these protests that lasted for months, every week there was a big protest in Paris. Journalists were as targeted as rioters. Like they, they were considered almost as rioters, for example. And so no matter if they had a helmet written press on it or whatever, police officers would try to break their equipment or target them directly with flashballs. So like uh, rubber balls that have injured a lot of people in different protests in France in the same five years, basically. They would be also detained, but just for like only for the duration of the protest, basically. They would be not arrested, but put aside and not be able to work. There were times where, for example, a, a particular journalist I remember seeing alive on Facebook, he was at a crossroads in the center of this of a city. I don't remember where. It's not linked to the protest. It's something else, but it's in the same period. He could go four different ways. I think he was covering a sitting somewhere in a company or something. And because he was a well-known journalist that, were, that was covering this, these kind of things, police blocked all four ways he could go and so he was just standing there in the middle of the crossroads and he had to wait two or three hours for the policeman to go away like they wouldn't allow him to go anywhere basically because he could just take another street and come back some other way so he was he was just stuck there that's such nonsense 
Yeah, and it's just it was just like they weren't arresting him. They were just like standing on the on the sidewalk, and then he would he tried to go past them, and they would just move and be like, "Don't touch me! If you touch me, it's like a violation." And then like an, as if it was an aggression, basically. I think the big problem right now is this kind of hypocrisy towards uh, journalism. Like, police officers feel in, entitled to stop people from doing their work because they have like these excuses, like if you go further, then you are a threat, basically, or like. If the policeman is walking into a journalist, then they and the journalist doesn't move, and it, it's like almost as if you tried to hit them. For example, it's really it's a big hypocrisy, I think. But we have a lot of cases like this. It's not just journalists covering protests; it's also a general attack on journalism by a lot of politicians. For example, right now, so we're recording on the 14th of April. It's between the first round of the elections and the second round which is going to be on the 24th. So it's uh, Macron versus Le Pen. And for example, Le Pen, which is the extreme far right, she's been banning a few different journalist organizations from her meetings. Mostly left-wing journals are not allowed to go and cover these, these events, which doesn't work towards media freedom. But sorry, I have a question. They cannot apply or they're not invited? They can apply, but they're always denied. For example, there's one really popular TV journalist called Quotidien. They're kind of left-wing. Like, they have some left-wing views, but they're still part of a big company, so it's light left-wing. They've been denied for 10 years access to Le Pen meetings because the last time they were invited, like, the, the last time she agreed, so she had an interview, and all the questions, she was really uncomfortable because they were really, like, extreme far-right. You know, you can go into, like, corner them with some questions. Like, they would interview people that vote for her. They would say really racist things. It was not, like, up for debate if it was racist or not. Like, it was clearly racist. And so the journalist would ask, are you okay with having these people voting for you? And she was like, no, but come on. Uh, it doesn't mean that they're racist or whatever. And, and the, so she didn't feel comfortable. She invited them one last time to, like, a conference she was giving. And just by having one cameraman there, he managed to, like film the the meeting they, they didn't ask questions or anything he was just there to film and it was like Le Pen facing uh, civilians and them asking questions about buying power so the civilians were invited to ask her questions about any topic and the the point of it was trying to make her look better because most of her campaign was about immigration and security for example so they had questions about buying power or pension things like this and just the cameraman just noticed that people were reading from stuff And so he just went behind everyone and he saw that every question was written on a piece of paper and the people weren't comfortable when reading the questions. So you, you realize they didn't know what, what they were going to ask, basically. And so they went behind Le Pen and, she saw, and they saw that she had every answer to every question written down on these papers. And then they also noticed that the civilians weren't civilians. Some of them were party officials dressed as civilians. And from there, they banned this uh, journal from every other meeting afterwards. That's so funny. Yeah. Seems to be very nice journalistic work. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not like, yeah, it's, it's funny to see, but it's kind of... No, it's not funny to experience that. I no. understand. Yeah, yeah. There's another case also that was just revealed that was uh, from two years ago. There's um, a movie that came out called Media Crash made by a leftist uh, journal basically it came out in theaters a month ago or something and they released a small extract on social media that's like six minutes talking about again the same journal quotidien 
which had a journalist called Valentin Auberti. In this journal, sometimes they would cover a lot of important topics such as France selling weapons to Yemen because there's a war in Yemen. And she would ask questions to different ministers, like the army minister and, and things like that, asking, do you know if French weapons are used against civilians in that war? And they would consistently say, no, we know for a fact, they don't use it for that. It's for something else. What? We don't know. But we just know it's not true. And one of her source gave her a classified document proving that they knew that it was used against civilians because they have data and stuff like this about certain weapons found somewhere and like they had this data basically and with this document in the hand she went to ask them the same minister again and what happened is she didn't answer at all and then quotidien re received an email saying we can sue you because you revealed classified information basically which is understandable as it's classified but in this particular case it, it didn't feel like protecting the french nation because it was just them lying basically And so they didn't air that whole part during the journal because they were scared to face like the prosecution, basically. Mm -hmm. And this journalist, she changed the journal and then decided to, although she could face trial for this, uh, she decided to reveal that. So, you know, just the fact that, you know, journalists saying that the government is lying with actual proof, which is not about like conspiracy theories or whatever. It's just one thing that's not about like... 5G or whatever, you know, it's, it's a really concrete topic and that is important, you know, like you don't want to be funding civilian death. Basically, it's like if we were selling weapons to Russia for now, for example, because from my point of, point of view, Russia is not the good guy in the Ukrainian war. Like we've learned, we, we know that France sold weapons to Russia five or six years ago and we don't know if it's used right now against Ukraine, but if we were, it's probably used, but we don't know for sure. It wouldn't be a good thing. I wouldn't, as a French person, I don't want war at all. But like, if I know that my country is knowing that the countries they sell to uses it to kill civilians, it's, I think it's a really, I want to say a really bad thing, but it's even worse than bad to me, you know. Yeah, actually, three points here. Firstly, I think that selling, buying, producing weapons, it's a very big conversation. But basically, if you sell weapons, you already can expect that it will be used some days in this or other country. So France or Russia selling weapons doesn't matter. I think the politicians know very well what they do. Uh, second, yeah, I have big doubts now after your stories that France should take 34th place, you told. <laughs> yeah. And maybe go lower. <laughs> I would put it maybe closer to 50s after all that, but I don't know. It's hard to compare, of course, but that's almost the same cases that we have in Russia with censorship, with lack of public access for journalists and so on. I understand that it was by Le Pen, so it was not done by a president, but still it reminds me of, just to say. And one more point. Yes, I think there is a big question, and that's maybe an ethical question, or maybe it's even something more than that. There is a borderline between censorship and public interest because clearly journalists do a lot of things because of public interest and they have this obligation to reveal the truth and to tell the information to citizens and then the country, basically the government, prevents them from doing it. I mean, which part is guilty here? 
I don't know. I'm always for journalists, obviously, but we have governments and we need to listen to them sometimes. Yeah, I mean, it does feel like it's getting worse, basically. Like you said, maybe France should be lower than 34. And maybe uh, the thing is, yeah, it's a fastly developing situation because, I mean, I've become aware of these problems only a few years ago. Because I wasn't very interested interested in politics or any subject, so journalism itself was not something I followed. So I can't say that to me it has always been like this. For me, it's like I started hearing about problems like this, and then the more I got interested in it, the more I could find out, for example. Because, like for example, on social media, you start following journalists and things like this, and they share more and more articles, and then you hear about more different journalists, more different journals, and then you hear more and more stories. So is it just the fact that I find more and more, I mean, of already existent problems or is it actually accelerating, you know? Personally, I I'm, I don't know for sure, but it seems like it's accelerating because there's also like this thing where those kind of stories appear more and more on mainstream media, meaning that they just can't ignore them as much as they could before, maybe because there's so much more. You know what I mean? Okay, but that's a good sign. Yeah. But then it also means that, you know, there's not much we can do because basically people protest and then people in power just say, yeah, you know. I have one last thing that's, it's not as, I don't consider it as bad as the rest, although it's still not a good thing to me. It's still about Macron because I'm very criticizing of things that happened during his presidency. There's a journalist in the New York Times that published an article, and he misquoted Macron on something. But when I say misquoted, it's just like a different word, but the idea was pretty exact. But for appearances, the misquote looked worse. So Macron just called the journal asking for them to take down the, the article. And uh, another American journalist com commented on, that, on this, and I agree with him. He said, it's stunning that the leader of one of the world's most powerful nations, a leading democracy, should take the time to repeatedly let it be known in a direct manner to Anglophone publications that they are behaving inappropriately, so much so that it requires innovation from on high. And I think it's pretty accurate. Yeah, I think so too. It's like, it's such... Because, I mean, you could have, for example, someone from your cabinet or a new government asking, you know, calling and say, no, it's the president himself, just call. And it's so much more intimidating, I think. Although he was probably just asking, like, of course, the journalist could have let it, let the article, nothing would have happened. Probably, maybe he would have been reprimanded by his bosses, but he wouldn't have been fired for this, probably. But it's just still concerning. But I also think, you know, like I said, mainstream media can't ignore things as much as they could before. And I think they still try to. And it's mostly because of a certain direction they're going towards, like mostly private media organizations and that's mostly because of who owns them because at least in France they're owned by billionaires who also have different companies and they need a certain interest in some subjects to keep you know the to keep making a certain amount of money basically and so I was wondering uh, Carmen how is it in Spain? In Spain there are eight communication group although on television The most important are uh, Mediaset and Atres Player. In radio, the most important are Group Prisa, Cope and Planets. And in Spain, these media are led by families, other international group or 
businessmen. So in the end, the media become company with personal interesting and objectives beyond inform something that affects media freedom. That's so interesting. Aid communication group seems to be a lot to me, but how is it in France? Well, we have a few different like media groups, for example, but some of them, although they're different media groups, are owned by the same person. Of course, there's more journals and more people that owns them. But for example, in France, we have this person Vincent Bolloré, who owns the group Canal, which has a few different channels on TV called C8, C News, Canal Plus. Like there's a few different ones. Uh, he also owns a few uh, newspapers like Paris Match or Le JDD, which are both really popular newspapers. Then there's another another billionaire who owns Les Echos, Le Parisien, or a radio called Radio Classique. Another person called Patrick Drahi, who owns BFM, RMC, which are two big news channels, and also two big uh, newspapers called Libération and L'Express. And we also have Martin Bouygues, for example, who owns the two biggest private TV channels called uh, TF1 and MCS, which just merged because before they were separate entities and now he owns both. I don't remember which one he owned first, but it, it happened this last year, I think. And what's very concerning is that these people have interests in certain domains. And for example, it affects so many things. For example, what, for me, the, the, the worst one on this list is Vincent Bolloré for a lot of different reasons. Just for example, He bought a radio called Europe One, Europe One, basically. And as soon as he bought it, they wanted to do like changes inside, like with the different journalists and people on the air and stuff like this, what they should say and things like this. Everyone went on a strike. They were all fired, basically, and they just hired new people. And now it's a mostly right-wing views radio. And it's very concerning because there were a lot of other radios that were sympathetic to like the, the strikes and things like this. And it didn't matter at all. He just said, you want to go? You can go. It's fine. Another big thing, it's still still the same. One of the presidential candidates for this year's French elections called Eric Zemmour. He's been on TV for like 15 years, basically. He was on the public service. I think he started on the public service as like, um, he was never really a journalist. He was like an opinion person. So like self-proclaimed historian, things like this. You know, he's not a historian, but he has views on history, for example. And he has this way of talking that makes him... That makes people think he knows stuff when really he doesn't, you know. And so he's been on TV for years. And a few years before he announced that he was a candidate for the presidential election, he arrived on the private sector with on CNews and on the channel called CNews. And so he was regularly there pretty much every day or every two days, you know, talking about right wing and extreme right wing subjects like security, immigration. And to compare it to journalism, it's like, you know, spreading information. Journalism, one bit part of it is spreading information, you're verifying information, spreading it in some way. So you have these shows, you know, these opinion-driven shows that, are, that aren't, they're, they're not journalistic ventures. Like, they have anyone on these shows, you know, saying bullshit, basically. And so this person, he was very influential to a lot of people because, you know, you just turn on TV and you have these channels that have this news channel appearance you know this like an interviewer yeah and this has so much influence that i mean at some point he just went basically egotistical and just decided to say he was a candidate for the elections because a lot of people were supporting him on this channel saying wow you're saying you're speaking the truth 
it's wow finding someone who understands us and things like this but it's really just because every show that it's on this channel all day is just talking about two subjects security islam and for example you know and it never ends so these people just think it's It's what's the most important problem, for example. They don't talk about buying power. They don't talk about social unrest, whatever. They just talk about this. And so you see that just this person, Vincent Bolloré, he just basically, he just gave this ramp, basically, a platform for someone to just, you know, create a presidential candidacy. Like just his own media, just, you know, influencing people in a certain way using these fake informational TV shows. He managed to create someone who ended up having 7% of the complete votes. He was the fourth. And I think, you know, he was like basically a contender to Le Pen. Like they were basically the same. But people st sticked with Le Pen because she was more established, basically. And they were afraid none of them would pass this, the first round if they really voted for Zemmour. But a lot of them wanted to vote for him. So he probably would have had more You know, he could have had maybe 15%, which is like huge. And it's like this influence is baffling to me because a lot of these billionaires share the same interest. And so it starts with one channel and then you have a second one that does the same and it never ends. Like news channel, like for example, uh, BFM, which is a news channel. Sometimes they have opinion uh, shows like the others. They would put uh, Zemmour's meetings, basically. Like he has a meeting somewhere in France for two hours and they are going to put the whole thing on the air and saying, what do you think about this? But it's the only person they would do it for. Like every other party would have meetings and they would just like mention it and then that's it. Okay. I, I think these cases need proper investigation because it smells like money, like a lot of money, what you are describing right now. Yeah. So Carmen, you mentioned that, that there was a somewhat similar situation in Spain. Do you have more information? Yes. In Spain, what I have observed is that all of that many group, they try to have more and more. So it's difficult to survive the new media or more independent media because the companies try to, to control the space. So it's very difficult to have new media independence. So this is the problem in Spain. There are eight groups, but they want to control everything. And what do you know about Russia? Well, I know some things. As for example, we have three or four major TV networks and they're all now under control of Kremlin in the hands of Kremlin loyalists. And some of them were state-owned since the foundations in 1991. The others were in fact owned by private entities, for example, by Boris Berezovsky and Vladimir Kusinsky. And after that, they were sold to the government and to the oil and gas company Gazprom around the year 2000-2001. But here, I think I have a bigger question about that, because basically we all know and understand that the main TV channels owned by government and a lot of newspapers are either owned by public authorities or sponsored by public authorities. That is why they are clearly not independent. What is to do in this situation when the country's main channels are owned by the government, which you know is authoritative, and young journalists still go to journalism schools and they get out, they need practice, should they just go and work for the government, for the TV channels, or they should avoid working there and maybe avoid journalism at all? 
will it be shameful for them, for these young people, go and work for the public TV? I think that a journalist should avoid working in, in media that are totally controlled by the government. And also, I think that people should complain so that this change, because in the end, the public media are important, but they have to be as impartial as possible. The problem is that there will be journalists who agree with the thoughts of the government, and then they will work in those media. I mean, sometimes the problem is that journalists are also people with their own thoughts and interests. Yeah, because, I mean... Media freedom doesn't mean that, you know, journalists are neutral. Obviously, everyone has opinions and things like this, and it usually drives what you, like, what kind of subject you're after. And it's completely normal, you know, to have journalists from every side of a, po a certain political spectrum, for example. But the thing is, they shouldn't be, wherever they work, whether it's the private or public sector, they shouldn't be told what to look for, for example. Yeah, I'd say that might be a bit idealistic. I mean, imagine a country with... 10 different media channels and then eight of them will be owned by the government or sponsored by the government and then you have two and all the competition goes basically among these two or you can go to the rest to the eight then you probably will have some ethical considerations yeah i mean it depends yeah but also carmen mentioned that some people can agree with the media with the untruths as well And I don't know how much propaganda can brainwash people, but I suppose that a lot. And can we trust them afterwards? Because right now there is this case of Marina Avsenikova, who was an editor at a state-controlled Channel One for many years. And someday she ran to the set of a Monday program holding a sign saying no war. And that was during the news And she was detained later on. Now I think she's working for some German program. So can we trust such people who suddenly, out of a sudden, decide that now they don't anymore belong to this brainwashing system and now they act free and they can start it all over again? But they were a propaganda machine for 10 or 15 years. I mean, I don't think I can understand her because, you know, it's a very specific situation in a country that I don't know anything about. I only have this exterior opinion. People said, you know, when this happened, and we talked about it in France a little, it was, we thought, you know, she's very brave to do this and everything, which I think she is. But then, like you said, she's also worked there for a very long time without questioning anything. So what's the balance like of how much you should trust people working that have been working in a system like this for a while, you know? Like, of course, there's this ethical morality question i don't know it's a, it's an interesting thing to think about i think for now you know the fact that she decided you know she had enough so she she said something and she risked being imprisoned and things like this i think is pretty courageous but maybe you know something should have been done before by these people you know because they're working in this propaganda machine and if they said something before the war for example if a lot of people who share these views said something in these media before maybe the government couldn't have gone forward with this without more opposition basically from the people because all they've seen is the information that this person participated in giving to them basically do you see what i mean i don't know if you agree yeah sure and for me this is still a big question because i cannot trust fully to such people at the same time i think that i only know in person people who worked for 
these kind of channels. I mean, I know a lot of journalists, but with some people we were connected by trainings and so on. So I wasn't really talking to them. And people who I was talking or sometimes sharing a flat with, for example, they were working for these governmental channels. And I always had this question, like, how can they? Okay, so we've talked about a lot of what we thought of the different media kinds of ownership, whether that's government, private. We've also talked about media freedom in general and examples that came to mind in the recent years for us. We also wanted to see what governments decided to do to prevent or aggravate this. After searching a little, I found some interesting things in France, also things I mentioned before that I'm going to go more in detail now. So for example, the different protests I mentioned before, journalistic work was kind of blocked, were about laws that would actually affect their work. So for example, the protests were about this law called the Global Security Law, which, had, which was mostly about security, meaning reinforcing the police officers and everything, but also giving them tools that would actually prevent journalists from doing good work, for example. So there were many different points in this law. It was a very big law that was questioned. So you, you had, for example, like increasing the number of police officers were, uh, nationwide. You had authorization from the police to use drones to film the streets and things like this, which is kind of dystopian. And there was a particular point, which is the one that raised the most questions and probably kickstarted the whole protesting, was that people filming the police, like basically you couldn't film the police anymore because if you filmed a police officer and like put it on social media, even if you, I think you had to hide their face, but I think even if you did hide their face, it didn't. So in France, you're allowed to film police officers, you know, when they arrest someone or in protest, you can do whatever they want. You have the right to film them because they're the public authority. So you, you need, they need to be held accountable. So you have the right to film them. But this law was saying that if a police officer believed at the point where you were recording him, that you would try to record him to harm him, basically his reputation, his work. Or something else like if if he thought that you were going to put this on social media for him to be like lynched on social media, for example, if they thought this, then they could arrest you. So a lot of people during the protest, not just journalists, but even citizens, you know, they would film police officers just, you know, to have some kind of protection because otherwise it's only their word against yours. This raised a lot of eyebrows and protests went on for weeks about this very specific point. But the yellow jackets was a different one? It's a different thing. It was before. So mm -hmm. at first it was the yellow jackets. So a lot of protests for a year and a half every Saturday, which is a lot. And because there were a lot of police brutality and rioters, and so like then media saying, oh, there's police brutality because they're, they have to because rioters, and then people saying it's it's not rioters, it's police officers dressed as... In, which some of them were true, some of them, like, it's not, that's not the point here. But there was a lot of violence in this protest. Mm -hmm. And then more questions were asked, and then this law arrived, basically. Uh -huh. it's, it's kind of like a consequence to a year and a half of protesting. It was like, we need to, the government was like, we need to give more, no, we need to support more the police, so you need, we need to give them more of the things that they want. So more freedom and more people, including... Because like, they couldn't fight the protests. Because they they wanted to be able to be less accountable for the things that they were doing, basically. 
in the end, this particular point about not filming police officers was modified to say that if it was of public interest to film, then you were, you were allowed to film it and publish it. But it's the first writing of this law was like, not even about publishing, just if you filmed it, because there was a risk that you would publish it for a negative reason, then you could be stopped at any point by the police officers. Otherwise, there are other things that are kind of dangerous to journalistic work. For example, the sources for a journalist in France are protected. So if you have information and you have an actual source, you don't have to give it to the authorities. You're allowed to not say their names because, you know, they could be in danger or they could face repercussions like from justice or whatever. Like I mentioned earlier with the classified document that was given to a journalist, this journalist, she gave it to another media after Quotidien was uh, prevented from talking about this subject. She ended up giving the document to another media who decided to go all the way, even though they were threatened and stuff. And so two of the journalists working on this case were additioned by the police of police. And, you know, the, an entity that evaluates police work, basically, but they also treat this subject. For example, if there's a question of police brutality and someone presses charges, for example, against a police officer, then the case goes to the police of police, basically. That's what their name in France is, like police of police. It's like the police internal affairs department is more accurate. And so they were threatened, you know, like of being sued if they didn't, if they didn't give out their sources, although they knew they had the right not to, so they didn't. But you see this kind of threatening inside uh, a system that is supposed to protect journalism. What kind of recent laws have you heard about in Spain? In Spain, there are several laws that regulate media freedom. The most important is the Constitution of 1978. In it, it said that uh, media freedom is a fundamental right. Then in 1984, the government created the regulation law of the right to rectification. Then in 2006 and 2009, they published loud on radio and public television. And finally, it is important to know the general audiovisual communication law that was created in 2010. All of them try to protect journalists and media freedom. Uh, yeah, we also in the constitution in France, we have similar laws, you know, to protect in general journalism. But I mean, from a lot of examples I gave for France earlier, you see that people find a way to not care about these laws, basically. So sometimes you kind of wonder, what's the point? What's about Russia? Do you feel that Russian law on journalism protects or puts, or puts journalism in a more precarious situation? It's both. It's always both uh, with the laws because you can use them as you wish. Firstly, Russia as well has a constitution, which is really nice and fine, but it doesn't mean that it works. Secondly, the regulation of mass media in Russia is governed by a range of both national laws, like the law on mass media and international laws. And I wonder what actually happens to some of these international laws since, for example, Russia stopped its residency in the Council of Europe. An important role is also played by state authorities, such as Roskomnadzor, that's the authority that, for example, was blocking every single website with the independent media and also tried to block Telegram 
years ago. And there are certain laws which are definitely hard for the media to take care about because if they don't follow these laws, then they have fines. There are some bans, for example, a ban on the use of explicit language. I think this one is pretty common in all over the world. Uh, there is also a law that doesn't allow to disclose information, which is a state secret and any other legally protected secret. And you cannot publish about narcotic drugs, some other psychotropic substances and their analogs. You cannot publish or advertise sales of tobacco uh, and tobacco consumption. Since the law in 2013, you cannot publish much about LGBT+, uh, since the law on the traditional family values, uh, because you shouldn't discourage children to disrespect their parents, and as well you shouldn't promote non-traditional sexual relations, which is not defined in the law, but then I guess media is self-centered in this case. And a couple of other bans, uh, that is, you cannot publish or mention extremist organizations. And now among the extremist organizations, you can also find some of the media and you cannot describe suicides. That happened also after a massive case of suicides. So yeah, I don't know what you think about that. I think that's a lot of bans. At the same time, I know that here in Hungary, for example, they have quite a similar media laws. So I cannot judge if it's too extreme or not. Yeah, I, I see what you mean. I don't think we have any bans like this in France. I know we can swear. Like, uh, even on public channels, it's not really... At least on radio, I'm like because I've heard it on radio. On TV, you don't see people swearing but I, th I think it's mostly because of like a uh, general posture like people you know they're trying to give off a certain professional image but on the radio it's a little bit different there but no other bands like this i mean some of them you know you could you could have some good arguments towards them like for example not promoting alcohol drugs but just mentioning them you know it's not really like banning the mention of things like this feels kind of weird because you could have informational you can mention them, oh, okay. but then you shouldn't show that it's something which people like. Okay. For example, there was a case with a Russian old cartoon where there was a hare and a wolf, so two characters, and a wolf was constantly smoking. So after this prohibition on smoking on TV, there were a lot of questions what to do with these episodes where the wolf was smoking, and I think that they censored it, actually. So now the wolf is a non-smoking animal. Okay. Actually, then, I think we have some things like this, like you cannot promote things in this way as well. But I think it's mostly tied to advertisements and things like this. So it's, in general, not just journalism, basically. Okay, so our time on the podcast is coming to an end. We've discussed a lot about of our different countries' situation on media freedom. And we also had a few thoughts on what our opinion was towards media freedom, what kind of ideas we would have or what we believe it should be. Each of us coming from a different country with different cultures, we may have different opinions or maybe not. Let's see. What do you think, Armin? I believe that uh, media freedom will be more real when the media get more money from readers than from company or 
political group. Then in the future, I hope uh, there are still many different media because the pluralism is good for media and freedom. And also hope that people understand that sometimes it is necessary to pay subscription for good information and quality journalists. Although sometimes not everyone can pay. So in the future, I also hope that uh, public media are much more independent. And I think for Russia, it's pretty hard to transition from dystopia to utopia. But I still would like to hope for it. And I still would like to see Russia high up in the press freedom index somewhere, at least somewhere in the first 50. But in fact, what I would like to see right now to finally let independent media work without threats or fines or prohibitions and censorship. Hopefully there will be different financial mechanisms to sponsor media so that they wouldn't rely on corporations. I agree with you, the two of you when you say, you know, people should be should be the one funding information, basically, because it makes it more independent. And I really hope it comes to that someday. I also hope, you know, one of the main things that I like about journalism is, I mean, I don't like to hear about subjects that are, you know, like corruption or when people do something and it's been hidden for a while, you know. But it's a good thing to learn about it and, like, be angry. And I kind of like this feeling sometimes. Like, sometimes I, I like it, sometimes it's too much. But I really hope, you know, people can will have more and more, you know, the opportunity to have that feeling and to, because that's what is going to inspire change in a lot of different areas, whether that's government or policies in general or just people's minds and opinions. So I really hope, you know, we get to that someday where as many countries as we can, you know, like you said, Russia, you hope it goes up in the rankings and I really hope it does too because it's not just about the journalists, you know, it's about people having the information they need to actually shape the world they want to live in, you know. You can't, it's a very utopian thing to say. But that was the point of the of this segment. So. <laughs> so thank you, Natasha. Thank you, Carmen, for being here. I hope everyone listening found our podcast interesting and got you looking more into your own country, how it is. You can check the Reporters Without Borders website to see the rankings and maybe see that things need to change in your country, or maybe not. If you live in uh, Norway, for example, you're, you don't have much more to do. Maybe you, you can find something to do but you, you would be fine. How else do you think media freedom should look like? Give us your thoughts on social media. Thank you for listening. Bye. Goodbye. Bye.